And Lord, we do agree with those prayers and do desire that your spirit overwhelm all things that we think about today and ponder and talk about. And as we look at your word, that it would be the focus of our thinking. Renew our minds, renew our thinking, that we may see things from your perspective. And as was already prayed and mentioned, that uh, we do desire that we be lights in the world, the dark world that we live in, that we may be a faithful remnant and be able to accomplish what you you desire through us. And just pray that this study and this understanding of what you are doing in this particular dispensation, this particular time frame, that we would align our lives with it, that we may be useful and also be blessed as a result. So we commit our time to you, asking that you would... Uh, Enlighten our minds and our hearts to be able to see what you have in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's talk about what it means to be a remnant and what God does with a remnant. And I think that's the focus of at least verses 27 through 29 of Romans chapter 9. And you could look historically throughout world history from the beginning all the way to even our day and in the future even, God has always, always maintained a remnant. The nature of man is when man receives God's revelation and God works a great work of grace amongst mankind, our tendency, our tendency is always to depart from it. The uh, the concept of a remnant, God has, throughout world history, kept faithful believers close to him in the midst of a constant degeneration that has gone in these cycles that we looked at a few weeks ago. So we see kind of two major themes in scripture, man's depravity, man's falling away, you might say, apostasy within God's people. But in the midst of all that, God always maintains a faithful remnant. And it is through that faithful remnant that God will work throughout these time frames. So I consider you guys in this class a part of that faithful remnant, desiring to know what God says, desiring to know how to implement what God says into our lives, that we may, in fact, be that faithful remnant and have an impact on the lost world in which we live in. So Paul saw a faithful remnant in the city of Rome. That's who he's addressing. And he is addressing two groups, you might say, two uh, ethnic groups that include the whole world. But within that, he has called out that remnant amongst the Jewish people and a faithful remnant amongst the Gentiles. So today what I'd like to do is complete our first major section in the book of Romans. And if we have time, even introduce and touch on the next major part of it, where God is being vindicated. Paul is vindicating the righteousness of God in the choices that God has made concerning this new dispensation. And he made choices in the past as well concerning a particular people, the children of Israel, by God's sovereign choice, 
We get the word election from the Greek word that is has the idea of choosing, basically. And we're about to complete chapter 9, verses 1 through 29. And today we'll, Lord willing, unless we have a lot of discussion, get through verse 29 today, at least, I hope. Where God is laying out what he's done in the past as a pattern or as kind of a guide to understand what God is doing in this new dispensation that we are very familiar with because we've lived in it. And that's all we basically know from the New Testament. We know about the church age. So he's going to explain why, even though Israel is his people, that in the present time frame, they are under rejection and in God's discipline. So we'll begin that next week, particularly, hopefully, God willing. Beginning in verse 30 through the end of chapter 10. But God has not abandoned his people forever. They're only set aside under discipline in this time frame. Now, we don't think about it because we've been living in the church age for 2,000 years, so we think we're it. We think we're kind of the end of what God has in mind, and it, that's not the case at all. God will re- remove the church, and he will begin to fulfill all of the promises, all of the covenants that we have in the Old Testament, and in fact, restore the nation of Israel That's chapter 11, where all of Israel shall be saved. Now, when we get there, we'll explain what that means. That doesn't mean every single Jew will receive salvation, but uh, corporately as a nation, Israel will in fact receive their Messiah, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, rather than like in the first century, Israel as a nation rejected their Messiah and as a result, are under God's discipline. So that's kind of a summary of 9 through 11. And we have looked, and we're in the section of past sovereign election of the nation of Israel, where God's sovereignty is being vindicated, 19 through 29. We're at the end of that little paragraph, where he introduces human responsibility in verse 19. Verses 20 through 21, this using the illustration of a potter. God is like a potter. It's an illustration. The potter can do with the clay as he sees fit. He has a plan for it, and he can uh, reshape it. He can mold it in whatever form he so desires in order to come up with an end product. We're just in the middle of God shaping the universe to accomplish his purpose, and God is more sovereign than any potter. Last time we completed the little portion where this sovereignty is worked out or displayed, 22 through 24, and the whole context is dealing primarily with Israel. So Israel is a focus there, and for the very first time, he mentions Gentiles, and in that verse We see what God is doing in the present, what we might describe as the church age. We could even call it the age of Jew and Gentile, because that's what makes up the church. Then we looked at verses 25 through 29, the last portion here. We didn't quite complete that, where God sovereignly is working, and he's going to show first dealing with Gentiles, and then the passage we'll focus on today is... 
God's sovereignty worked out amongst the Jews. And amongst the Jews, he's going to introduce this concept, well, not introduce it, but explain the concept of what a remnant involves. And out of the broader picture of Israel, God has always preserved a faithful remnant, a faithful group that uh, not only have regeneration, but align themselves along with the plan of God. So just a quick review. We looked at this and uh, verse 23, 24, I include 23 because part of the sentence and he did so. What he's explaining here, dealing with two groups, unbelieving groups and believing groups, he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. And the focus here is that second category of groups, the believing group, vessels of mercy is the phrase that he uses. To describe the unbeliever, he uses the phrase vessels of wrath. In other words, they will experience God's wrath, not only in a temporal sense, but in an ultimate future sense as well. So he's doing all of these things, this plan, and this plan, particularly with the vessels of mercy, is prepared beforehand. And I take it from other passages. It's not so clear here. This preparation has gone or has come from even eternity past before God even created the universe. God being not only omniscient, he has a view of everything that is going to transpire. And in eternity past, everything is future from the universe perspective. Uh, there's nothing future from God's perspective. So he has a plan and he's prepared certain things and he's prepared certain things for vessels of mercy. We kind of focused on that last time. And this is prepared for glory, to bring glory not only to himself, but also the objects of his mercy. And then uh, he finally, I think in verse 24, is getting at the crux of this whole section that he began beginning in verse 6. Now he's going to bring it to the first century, and then we can apply it in the 21st century. Even us. Now he's identifying himself in that and his audience of both Jew and Gentile. And remember, we've been stressing the believers. This this book is written to believers. It's not written to the unbeliever. Even us that have believed in Messiah, that have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's not clear enough, whom he also called, reminding us of some of the central things we talked about in Romans 8, calling, predestination, justification, sanctification. We've experienced those whom he also called. And in his mind, not only, not from among the Jews only, in other words, there was a large contingent of Jewish believers in Messiah, Still a minority in terms of the nation, but not only amongst the Jews, but then the increasing numbers, particularly at the time that Paul is writing, which is at the end of the third missionary journey, but also from among the Gentiles. This is the first mention in Romans 9 through 11 of the Gentiles. He's been focusing on the past sovereign election of Israel, but now this is what he's getting at. He's getting at 
the fact that God is setting aside his people, essentially, corporately, but within his people, there are some that are called. In fact, I would say some that are chosen, elect, foreknown. I forgot that aspect. Foreknown, predestined, and justified, or not from the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Now, he's not talking about the church here. He's talking about the concept of the uniting of these two groups from uh, people from both Jew and Gentile that would have been prominent in the first century. So this concept he's dealing with in this whole section, he's talking about all of Israel, ethnic, national, might even include the word corporate Israel. Within that, there is a true Israel. This is how he begins, beginning in verses 6 and 7 and on, including children of God. These are regenerate people. These are people that know the Lord. These are faithful. These are children of promise. And then he's going to develop that concept going all the way back to Isaac. We've looked at that. And it's not till we get to verse 24 that he begins to talk about the Gentiles. And amongst the Gentiles, there are also people that are called, you might say. And last time, from verse 22 and some of the following verses, we're kind of wrapping up some some more of the details concerning this idea of God choosing a people. We're still in this section. So he's been dealing with Israel corporately. Israel chosen as a nation, 6 through 24. But that also means that uh, because of rejection of Messiah, corporately Israel is also set aside as a nation, no longer the focus of what God is going to do amongst the world. And in that, it talks about beforehand. There's a plan in verse 23 that I just mentioned. And I take it to eternity. There's... A little debate among some scholars. And I think what he's ultimately talking about is this particular age, even though he's not talking about the church yet, but during this period of time, the church age believers, referring to us, Paul including himself, including the Jewish believers in Rome, including the Gentile believers at Rome as well. And that church has a calling, and we looked at that concept in Romans 8, 28 through 30, and uh, it uh, ends in regeneration, well, beyond regeneration, it ends in uh, glorification. And I think now the focus is more on individual Jews rather than corporately. He's dealing with those that have received Messiah. They don't make up a corporate body. They become incorporated into the corporate church. But in 24 through 29, I say that's why I say he's not dealing with the church yet. He's dealing with individuals that come into a saving relationship. And there's also individual Gentiles, also 24 through 29. So that kind of catches us up to 25. Well, I'm still reviewing. As he says also in Hosea, now... If you look at 24, well, I won't go back to 24, but in 24, remember the last thing that he says, also from among Gentiles, now he's going to expand the Gentiles. That's the immediate context. So I take it what he's taking, even though there's a little bit of a problem there that I tried to resolve, as he says also in Hosea, 
Now, Hosea doesn't deal with Gentiles. Hosea is dealing with the northern kingdom. And in that, as he says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. That's the northern kingdom. He's going to cast them out and view them as not his people. And her who was not beloved, beloved. So I will call those who were not my people, my people. Remember the context. But this passage says he's going to call them back. He's going to restore them. Now, in Hosea, he's talking about a restoration of the nation of Israel. And I think what Paul is doing, like I tried to develop last time, he quotes from 23, dealing with the northern kingdom. He's indicting them for their idolatry. And he's alluding, well, not so much alluding, predicting the Assyrian captivity. We looked at the Hosea 1, 2 through 9. And in Hosea 1.10, which is the next passage, he's dealing with the restoration of the, na- the nation. And what, he's, what Paul is doing, he's taking this passage, and this is what I want to focus here on. He's not saying it's fulfilled in the Gentiles. It's not a fulfillment. What he's saying, just as this pattern of God dealing with, with his people that are, he calls them not his people. So also that pattern, when God brings not his people back and makes them beloved, he is doing something similar in the first century and calling a not his people, the Gentiles, in a similar way. He's calling them to himself. This is the way that God has worked in the Old Testament, dealing with the northern kingdom. Now he's doing something similar with the Gentiles. They are not his people, and now they are becoming his beloved. So some of the principles of God's choice includes Gentiles, 26 through 27. And the passage goes on, and it shall be that in that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people there, they shall be called sons of the living God. Again, that's from Hosea 1.10. And this is a pattern that he's using to describe what God is doing amongst the Gentiles. He's calling them sons of the living God. Now, it's not so clear. And I think this is how we harmonize the quotation, and relate it to the Gentiles. Now, this is where we left off. We didn't uh, look at verse 27 other than I introduced it in verse 27 through 28. Now he's shifting. I think 25, 26 deals with the Gentiles. He's expanding what he says in verse 24. And not only amongst the Jews. So now he's going to take Isaiah, another Old Testament passage that the Jewish contingent would be familiar with. And he says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Now he's talking about Israel in this context, and he's going to talk about Israel in the next verse as well. In fact, it's a verse 28 is a continuation of this sentence and a continuation of Isaiah. And notice it says, Isaiah cries out. I think it's like Isaiah is begging his people. This is what Paul is doing. Remember the beginning of chapter 9. He he is sorrowful. He's crying, you might say. He is yearning and desiring that his people would respond. Some were, but he would hope that more. And in fact, the entire nation. And Isaiah cried out in his day 
concerning the same people, the same descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob being Israel. He cried out, and what he's going to do here, so let's look at a different context. Let's look at the Isaiah context. In Isaiah 10, this is where the quotation comes, and it's somewhat of a loose quotation, but what Paul is doing is he's going to take this passage and now apply it, you might say, or use it in terms of God's pattern in terms of Israel. So 10, 22 through 23, though the number, now Isaiah and Paul, because he's quoting that Isaiah 10 passage, Isaiah takes us all the way back to Genesis. Well, I should ask you the question, where does Isaiah take us? Anyone have any suggestions? I already gave it away. Isaiah is referring to what? I didn't give you the specifics. Genesis twenty-two twenty-seven. That's one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Abraham. Abraham and Genesis 22. What more specifically? That was very good. All of those are good. And to round it out and complete it, the Abrahamic covenant. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea. And remember, he's already referred to aspects of the Abrahamic covenant when he talks about through Isaac and through uh, Jacob, and eventually the number would be innumerable. He's using kind of imagery here, like the sand of the sea. He had already used the imagery that uh, they would be innumerable, like the stars of the heavens, billions and billions of Jewish people. And even though God is going to multiply them, always, so The Abrahamic covenant is in view. Always it is the remnant that will be saved. That's an interesting concept, the concept of a remnant. And you can gather together many other passages. This is one of the fundamental ones in uh, the New Testament, Romans 9, verse 27. The Isaiah passage in the time frame towards the end of Israel's history, when the nation is in decline, there remains in that time frame a remnant. Isaiah is calling people out to become that remnant, to be a part of that remnant, and telling them it is the remnant that will be saved. Now, in the Isaiah context, and in fact, in many passages, when it says will be saved, that's not necessarily regeneration. Now, I think it may include that. But oftentimes it's, it's a temporal salvation. It's a physical salvation. And Isaiah is one of the prophets along with Hosea that we just looked at and some of the others as well. The, some of the other minor prophets, they're predicting the destruction and the end of the nation. And as you get closer to it, it becomes more specific in terms of the destruction aspect of it where Israel is going to be removed from the the land. And I think the the remnant will survive. They will be survivors. They They will be preserved. And I think what makes up the remnant is regeneration, but I think that's not the primary focus of the passage. It's a physical preservation that includes regeneration, but it also includes the physical preservation that God will utilize to continue the plan that he has, not only for his people, not only for 
Israel, but into the church age, and then even beyond the church age, where God again will regather the nation of Israel. Does that make sense? I hope I didn't introduce too many ideas in there. So when you see the idea, and I think, by the way, in the book of Romans, I think this this is a key. Most Bible teachers miss this little observation, but I think jot it down, write it down, cement it in your minds. Paul, here it is, in the book of Romans, when he's talking about what we normally think of as salvation, what word does he use? You all know it. We focused on it. We spent lots of time on it, many weeks on it. What word does Paul use? Justification. Justification. He is very consistent in the book of Romans. He uses justification. There are two aspects to justification. Anyone want to give the two aspects? And what he's talking about there is regeneration and or what we commonly refer to as salvation. Two aspects. Suggestions? Oh, no, we're going to have to go back and start over again. Forgiveness of sin, there's the negative aspect. You can think of it as a negative and a positive. The forgiveness of sin, the cleansing, and there's a positive aspect. Linda's got it. She's got her microphone on. The the declaring of righteousness. of righteousness. Two aspects. The negative, forgiveness of sins. The positive, the granting, you might even say of life, of regeneration and or a right standing before God. That is what we commonly think of as salvation. That was not necessarily the immediate thing that was thought of, particularly in the Old Testament, but even in the time of Paul. When Paul used the word sozo, or the noun form of salvation, the word that is translated here, it was sometimes thought of in terms of a temporal, physical aspect. Now, the point I'm making here in the book of Romans, when Paul uses the word salvation, I think almost every time he is using it more in the sense he may include the idea of spiritual salvation as well, but more in the sense of temporal. We'll see this again. We're going to see it more in Romans 9 through 11, but keep that tucked away. When you see the word salvation, don't automatically let your mind go say, oh, you know, you know, you read it, you don't think about it. You read it automatically, what you think, oh, he's talking about Regeneration. He's talking about justification. He's talking about eternal life. Well, Isaiah didn't mean that. Isaiah, I think that was secondary in Isaiah's thinking. And it's also, I think, uh, secondary in Paul's thinking. In fact, I'll challenge you. Trace through all of the uses of the Greek word, either in its noun form or it's in its verb form, in the book of Romans. And see if you can find an example where he's talking specifically about regeneration. Now, he may include it, but it's more secondary. Okay? Does that make sense? What's the word? Soteria, the noun form, or sozo is the Greek word, the verb form. It's not dikaiasune, which is righteousness. Two very distinct terms 
two different meanings. And they can coincide and be describing the same thing, but they're looking at it from a different aspect. So Isaiah is talking about a choice of only a remnant, a remnant that will be preserved through the Babylonian captivity and will be regathered in the nation of Israel in preparation for Messiah. Now, Paul has already been talking about a remnant. He hasn't used the word yet, but he is already developing this remnant theme. Can anyone uh, remind us of where this remnant theme begins in Romans 9, at least? Any suggestions? Linda's thumbing through her past notes, trying to find it. Anyone beat, beat Linda before she finds it? Hurry before she comes up with it. Uh Uh-oh, took too long. All the way back to Isaac. Do you remember the big point he's making? The, the, uh, the line and the promises are through Isaac. Isaac, you could consider as like a remnant. It's through Isaac that the, not only the seed, but the, the people of Israel will be through Isaac, not Ishmael. This whole idea of selection. And then he talks about Jacob, not Esau. It's through the sons of Jacob that we have the 12 tribes of Israel. And God will fulfill that promise through Jacob, not Esau. Remember the whole concept of God selecting and choosing and working. So this idea of selection of a remnant and preservation of a remnant I think in Paul's thinking goes to Isaac and then Jacob. And you can trace it historically. You can see during the Babylonian exile, I think this is what Isaiah is referring to, that remnant will be saved. They will be preserved through that Babylonian exile and they will be not only preserved, but uh, they will be brought back to the land, the land of Israel, in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And in the days of Messiah, you might even think that there is a remnant. Can you think through in the first century, first century Jews, who would make up this remnant, you might say? Who would be the ones that would respond to the Messiah? The disciples. Early disciples. But even before that, we had uh, people that were seeking out the Messiah, and when the Messiah was born, we have examples of, in fact, there's oh, yes, Jews, the shepherds. Yeah, we have Jews and Gentiles, even in the first century, responsive people to the things of God. You could include Elizabeth, Zechariah. They were godly people, members of the remnant of Israel. They were non-Pharisaic. They were non-legalists, you might say. They were responsive in the first century. And then after the crucifixion of Christ, God continued to gather together that remnant in the first century. And that would be the basis, that remnant, both, first of all, Jewish people would be the basis of the church on the day of Pentecost. Does that make sense? Ray, Ray, you could even include the um, Magi as Gentile remnant. Yeah, that's what I mentioned, both Jew and Gentile responding. Exactly. Very good. Very good. And then you have in the book of Acts, slowly you have the introduction to the gospel to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. This would be 
Now, they would not be the remnant of Israel, but they would be a new remnant that God would gather together. Uh, and in this case, they would be the basis for the, the New Testament church. But we're talking about Jewish people here. So in the first century, we, we have a, a remnant that would be part of the ev- eventual church. So you have a little, go ahead, Jim. Uh, so what's your view on, uh, the Messianic Jews today? Well, if they're regenerate, I would say they're part of the body of Christ. And they would be examples today of Jewish people. And if they are regenerate, I would say they are part of a remnant as well. Are there others that you would identify that are apparent well, as part of the remnant? Yeah, I could identify uh, this group that is meeting this Sunday. No, I'm talking about Jews. There may be, yeah, there may be, there, there probably are some Jews that I think are unbelievers right now. That during the Great Tribulation, there's at least 144,000 of them. No, I mean today. Well, I would say if the rapture is right around the corner, there are probably a hundred and maybe 140,000 or so Jewish people today that are unbelieving that God has not called to himself yet, but will during that seven year period. That word electos in the book of Revelation, I think, refers at least to those 144,000. Thank you. Does that make sense? Ray, I have a question. Connie? On your previous slide, um, your number four was first century Jews, but you also mentioned a lot of Gentiles. So should we add Gentiles to that number four? Yeah, but – yeah, yeah, I, I think I said that, yeah, but – I'm kind of focusing on what uh, kind of Paul's thinking here. Uh, Yeah, and that's why I would include you as well in the 21st century because you're you're not Jewish, but uh, you, in the midst of apostasy, this is where we can apply this, in the midst of the church overall abandoning scripture, abandoning even teaching, abandoning the Lord Jesus Christ, God's going to preserve us, and we want to, the human responsibility aspect, we want to uh, make those efforts to remain faithful to him. And he will, uh, we have the assurance that he will preserve us. So in our list here of God's election, this will be number, what is it, 12 or 13, rather. And by the way, this will be the last one that we'll develop from this portion here in terms of We've been developing principles dealing with God's choosing or God's election. Not only includes Gentiles, but includes only a remnant of Israel, verse 27. So there's your complete list. And if you want all of the rest of them, you can go back to the website or email me and I'll send you a complete list. Another question? Yes, Ray, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, It's not... All Gentiles. So there is a remnant that he draws from every group. It's not. Yes. It's not a comprehensive. No. Calling that, that there is a remnant that have heard. All can hear as Romans one says, all have heard. Yes. But there is only a remnant from every people group, whether it's God's elect or whether it's those who are not only a remnant will respond to what they have heard and follow through. Yeah. 
So let's add our clarification there. Includes some Gentiles. You happy? Uh, I'm that, happy. Is that better? Linda's happy. That's what counts. Well, uh, the reason that you limited it to the Jews in the first place, though, is because of verse 27's introductory uh, clause. Yes. Yes, I think he's shifting in uh, verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, and now he's going to quote it, and he quotes Isaiah 10, and uh, he talks about even though there's a multitude of Jewish people, and that has been fulfilled historically and continues to be fulfilled because there's babies born every day, Jewish babies every day. So the sand, the innumerable aspect, but it's within that corporate group that God calls out a few individual Jewish people to believe. And in, in Isaiah's case, it's to be res- responsive to what God has revealed to them in terms of believing in the future Messiah, but also in terms of faithfulness to God to be a faithful remnant. And then it goes on in verse 28. Does that clarify things, Jim? Verse 28 for the, okay, for the Lord will execute. Now there's a, there's kind of a gap here. He's gone all the way back to Genesis and talked about the Abrahamic covenant and the promise of innumerable descendants. And then in verse 28, he's kind of jumping into the future. And I think he's jumping to the future even, this is, but this is from Isaiah. I don't think this has been fulfilled even in the first century in 70 AD. I think he's looking even beyond the church age into the future. The church is a mystery in that God has not put it between the semicolon and the the verse 28 there. It's not there. It's a mystery. In fact, years and years and years, I think, go between the semicolon and the 28 there. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth. He's going to complete everything that he has promised. He is announcing, Isaiah is announcing a future executing of justice. Remember, this is also in the context of vindicating God's justice, God's righteousness. For the Lord will execute his His word, and this would be the prophecies of the prophets. This would be the revelation concerning judgment on the nation. And uh, there have been some judgments, some disciplines, the Babylonian captivity, And I think that might be a partial fulfillment of it. But I think he's looking at an ultimate, a thoroughness, which is the next phrase there. Thoroughly, and it's going to be quickly or rapidly. Now, I think this is kind of, you might even say like a pregnant prophecy in that it unfolds historically. I think it was partially fulfilled or in some measure fulfilled in the Babylonian captivity. And it probably was fulfilled to some extent during the the uh, invasion of the Romans in, in AD 70. But it was never thoroughly and completely in that it was not what we might describe as kind of the final discipline or the final judgment of the nation of Israel, which the Bible has lots of passages 
the bulk of the book of Revelation will describe that, and that's future from the church age. So that's the Isaiah passage. So we not only have the choice of this remnant that will be preserved, but I think the ultimate and final fulfillment of Isaiah 10 and what Paul is quoting there, Isaiah 10, 22 through 23, in the... what uh, Jesus calls the Great Tribulation and in the Olivet Discourse, which is even future from uh, the church age and future from our time frame, fulfillment in the Great Tribulation. Uh, The thoroughly and quickly aspect, at least. Does that make sense? So now in verse 29, he goes back to Isaiah and he's going to quote an earlier passage And just as Isaiah foretold, so he's still in Isaiah, and I think he's still dealing with Israel. He's expanding and going to another context. And the context of that one is Isaiah 1, 9. This is the, the beginning. And in Isaiah 9, we have kind of the summary, you might say, or a an outline of what God is going to do or reveal throughout the book of Isaiah. And in that, Isaiah very early is predicting, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, in other words, descendants. This is kind of another word for what? Unless the Lord had left a what? Seed. Well, yeah, that's the literal idea. But in this context, what did he just say? Remnant. Remnant. Very good. So this is another word, not only for seed and not only for descendants, but uh, I think he's alluding to the concept he just talked about in verse 28, unless God had left us a remnant. So what does that involve? Well, first of all, the Lord of Armies. Sabaoth is the Lord of hosts. I think King James translates it in other translations. He's talking about the Lord of armies. Again, I think this alludes to ultimately the ultimate gathering and the ultimate war, the ultimate battles that looks ahead even to the great tribulation. And in that, I think he's alluding to Tribulation Jews, the ultimate remnant. Not every Jew in the tribulation will receive Messiah. The nation as a corporate group will, the leadership will respond, and the majority of the Jews will. And I think they will be considered the the ones that will be saved. That is the tribulation remnant. So we have an ultimate. That is what I think... Isaiah is speaking of ultimately in Isaiah 1, 9 is he's giving assurance. Now, obviously, in Isaiah's time, eschatology is very fuzzy and not so clear and uh, not easily understood. But from our perspective and from Paul's perspective, Paul is quoting it. So he's anticipating in a future He's using it as a basis. And in, in the first century, the, the early disciples, I think they anticipated and thought that the second coming would be soon, certainly eminent. In other words, it could happen at any time. 
And there's indication in several verses that uh, I think in their thinking, they thought that Christ could come within their lifetime or within the first century. And I think Paul is thinking along these lines. Linda? Yes. How do you feel? Uh, how do you view the Holocaust? In a broad, Holocaust. in a broad sense, Jewish is people. It a judgment? Hmm? Discipline. Is it a judgment? An aspect of discipline. Now, it, a, a little. Go ahead. Does it have anything to do with a remnant? Yes. Yes. A little known story of the Holocaust. And, and nobody has estimates and nobody has any idea, but there are little hints and little stories of many Jews trusting in Messiah. Now, the aftermath, a lot of Jews became atheists as well because of the Holocaust. Yeah. But a little known story is that many of the Jews that died in the Holocaust, they believed in Messiah before their deaths. And the survivors, I would say, the survivors of the Holocaust would be those that physically were preserved. And uh, from them, we have, I think, present-day Judaism, some of them, present-day Judaism, that I think God is continuing to, their descendants to survive that will, I think, enter the Great Tribulation and will be, some of them will be members of that 144,000 that will be saved. Does that make sense? Yeah, maybe, maybe in the next class, uh, if you can, if you have a record, if you can point us to some things to read about that, uh, what you just referred to, uh, I'd enjoy reading it. Maybe others would too. Okay. Okay. I'll see if I can look up some things for you. All right. I hear, can I just say one more thing? Sure. I hear that they have. Um, Orthodox Jews have a lot of children because they're trying to replace the six million. That's possible. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I don't know what's in their heads, but I, you know, we can be assured that God is preserving Jewish people. And I think in our day, twenty twenty one June or or twenty, we're not there yet, right? Twenty twenty June. I think God is preserving. Amongst Jewish people, both a remnant that'll go into the Great Tribulation, but I think he's also preserving within a smaller group, a group of people that are responding to Messiah before the Great Tribulation. And these are the Messianic Jews or Jewish people that incorporate into the body of Christ. I think that's happening today. Thank you. Okay. Let's look at the last part of... The passage, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a posterity, if God had not done this and been faithful historically, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Wow. Strong words going back again to the, to Genesis. And in this case, Genesis 18 and 19, where we have the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what Isaiah is saying, we would have, we would be utterly destroyed in a cataclysm. And I think again, he's alluding to Babylon and again, alluding to 70 AD. But had God not preserved a posterity, preserved a remnant, all of Judaism would be destroyed. 
all Jewish people would have been lost in terms of physical existence. A obviously a, a very well-known judgment in the Old Testament, known almost as well as the Genesis flood, that would have become that would be the result of Israel. But the point being, God has reserved a posterity. God has and will and will continue to preserve a remnant. And I just thought I'd conclude this part with an interesting archaeological project that's going on today by somebody from Albuquerque. Some of you may know Steve Collins. He and I have been good friends for a long time. I've taught for him. But he is excavating a site, not in present-day Israel, but in uh, it's in Jordan, across the Jordan River. When we were in Israel, I tried to point to it off in the distance in the haze. But Tal al-Hamam, that's this mound here. And the reason I show this slide, in, fa- in fact, all of these slides that I'm going to show you are from Steve Collins. This is just by way of interest and to kind of bring it home here and so that you kind of get a picture that there was a real Sodom and a real Gomorrah and it's under excavation today. So when God speaks in his word, he's not talking about mythical events or mythical incidents, but real life things that science can discover and explore even today. This bigger site This is kind of the mound or the tell, but the city would have extended, and we get an indication from Genesis it was a it was a very large city, Sodom, all extended all the way to this area as well. And keep in mind all of these slides are Steve Collins's slides that he gave to me. So on a little sketch, this is again this is Rittmeyer, one of the archaeologists that is had a well known archaeologist that is uh, given some uh, drawings to Collins. This would be the extent of the outer wall of ancient Sodom, and there's evidence of destruction of that wall that goes back to the days of Abraham. Some of these things uh, Steve is uncovering. And just a few photographs of some of the, this is the lower city. That's the wall. That's the the bottom of the wall that would have obviously remained after the destruction of the upper portions of the wall. Six meters in in depth at the at the bottom there. So that would have risen up. Just a few shots of the site. And again, I think this may be Steve. I'm not sure. He'll, he'll show up in some of the other photographs. That would have been the ancient wall, or at least the foundation of it. And there's Steve to the left. Steve Collins. Some of the archaeological remains there. And here's an artist's conception of it. I think this is Ridmeyer again, of what the wall would have looked like. Not a small little fence, but an extremely large wall. And at the base, that would be that, what was it, six meters? Again, uh, Ridmeyer's reconstruction of what the, lo- the walls would have looked like in the days of Abraham. And another artist's conception of the site. This is Lean Rittmeyer again. So there's the upper city. And we don't have time to look at the next passage, but this is what we'll focus on next time. It's time for us to kind of wrap things up. So we've completed our look at past sovereign election of Israel. And we'll begin in verse 30 next time, chapter 9. 
present national rejection, and you can include in that of Israel as well. And this is vindicating the righteousness of God, God as sovereign potter, and in his good pleasure can fulfill the plan that he has, and he will do it in perfect holiness because he is totally righteous. So God always preserves a remnant, and we can apply this today. We want to be his remnant in in the culture in which we live in, the lost world, and that requires that we grow in Christ, that we grow in wisdom, grow in knowledge, grow spiritually, remain faithful in terms of our everyday, moment-by-moment walk. And we can be assured as God in every age has not only preserved a remnant, but he has used that remnant to accomplish his goal and his purposes. So today we want to be that remnant. Anyone care to close in a word of prayer for us? Ray, Ray can I just make an announcement? Yes. Um, uh, many people know that Mary Harrison died, and her service is going to be June 13th. Um, there's going to be a viewing at Reflections from 8 to 10 in the morning and a service at Grace Church from 11 to 12. Okay. Anyone want to close for us? If not... Connie gets the default position. I will happily default. Heavenly Father, we lift before you um, Jim Harrison and others who are suffering uh, with loss. Father, we pray that you would comfort them. Lord, we thank you that you are our comfort, um, that you have preserved us as a remnant. Lord, we pray that we can remain faithful. Uh, as we walk through our weeks, through our lives, uh, that we can point others to you and uh, that we can build up the remnant. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I hope you have a good day, good week. Mm-hmm. Any goodbyes before we uh, close? Goodbye. Goodbye, Rain. Thank you. Bye. We'll see ya. Bye. Since I got a haircut, I'll... Uh, Show my video. If you remember, my aunt was willing to braid my hair so I didn't have to go up to Denver to have my hair braided.